Sunday. I want to talk about the crushing of the Leviathan. Uh, because not every good work, not that this is a work of fiction necessarily, but not every good work of fiction has to be a Russian tragedy, and not every sermon has to be about COVID-19. So I'm going to do this, The Crushing of the Law. I've tried to do the Russian tragedies. Uh, I'm, I'm on my third attempt at Brothers Karasmov. Uh, firstly, I'm not even confident that I've said Karasmov right. Secondly, there's so many names in it that that becomes your undoing, and so you just imagine. And um, if I'm honest, like, Books with swords and dragons in it are way more exciting than Russian tragedies. So, uh, you know, I'm trying to be cultured, but in that area of failing. All right, Psalm 74, 12 to 17. But God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the sea monsters in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. It was you who opened up springs and streams. You dried up the ever-flowing rivers. The day is yours, also the night. You established the sun and the moon. It was you who set all the boundaries of the earth. You made both summer and winter. How good is that? Not every Bible passage preaches itself, but then every now and then you come across one like this, and it's like you don't even really even have to add any commentary. It's just it just says it how it is, and it just blesses your heart and leaves you going away feeling filled and encouraged. So grace and peace to you this morning, as you realise the sea monsters and the Leviathan have been crushed, and may that be a real blessing to you in this world that we live in. All right, well, I'll unpack a little bit what is going on. Psalm 74 is a psalm of disorientation. I, I used uh, Psalm 74 a couple of weeks ago when I talked about orientation, disorientation, reorientation. But in the middle of this psalm, we do have the psalmist who is disorientation. It's a psalm of disorientation. So the psalmist is very angry at God for letting him down, so to speak. And then right in the middle, he adds, Come on, you're my girl who came from ages ago. You've done this, and you've done this, and you killed the sea monsters, and you crushed the Leviathan. Uh, it's just basically you know, reminding God of who God is. So that, could you sort it out and show up now and do what I need you to do? Uh, it is that, but we're not going to focus it on so much as a psalm of disorientation. Uh, but more this portion in the middle, which is actually a, a creation psalm, or a creation narrative, or, or a, or a um, creation story. Another account of creation. There's about six, seven accounts of creation in the Bible. This is one of the accounts of creation. Uh, creation from nothing. Uh, creatio ex nilio is... I don't even know what's in there, right? Latin. I did Greek, not Latin or um, Russian. Uh, is a Christian doctrine regarding the affirmation that God is the creator of all matter from nothing, out of nothing, at some stage in the history of the cosmos. And, and I'm comfortable with that. I, I affirm that and believe that. Generally, though, most of the biblical accounts in regards to creation are less scientific, less scientific. They're not scientific at all. They're not really seeking to answer scientific questions in the slightest. The, the creation stories in the Bible are creation stories contemporary to their day and age and situation and season. And mostly they are an account of God, of Yahweh, being the one who brings order out of chaos. Uh, For most ancient people, there's a lot of chaos in the world, such as the fires, uh, earthquakes, uh, storms, floods, great oceans, and, and mostly those things get personified uh, and given kind of embodied ideology as kind of the, the great unknown and the great things that need to be tamed. Uh, you know, think of Elijah when God 
God was not in the fire, God was not in the earth shaking, God was, God was not in the storm. It's kind of a contrary, like, God's not in the disasters. There's this, God's the still small voice that speaks into you. But in regards to creation, the main issue going on is this idea of the world is chaos, the universe is chaos, but God is the one who brings order. Uh, chaos to order, darkness to light, the taming of the untamed and the unknown. So here's some of the ideas we have in Psalm 74. Uh, God brings salvation. Salvation is being reconciled and restored for sure, but salvation is also the proper ordering of things. The proper establishment of things. It's shalom. It's, it's the world in right relationship with itself, one of humans in themselves, to one another with creation. It's the, it's the proper putting together of the cosmos. And he split the sea by his power. The sea is always a picture of chaos. Because uh, the sea, for ancient people, is this wild, untamable reality. If you're not going to hop on a boat and sail the sea, like you're, you're rolling the dice kind of thing. That's a dangerous thing to do. It's this wild, untamable reality. So when it talks in Revelation about there'll be no more sea, uh, what it's saying is that chaos and disorder will, will be no more. Not that there won't be an ocean in the new heavens and earth, but rather that chaos and disorder will be done away with. He broke the sea monsters and crushed the Leviathan, the, the monsters of chaos, of the dark, the scary and forbidden and unknown. Uh, they're that which is beyond the fire, or on the other side of the garden, or uh, on the other side of the lake, or uh, outside the house. Um, always, the boogeyman under the bed in the dark is a scary thing. We all know this, like there's something that lives under the bed or in the dark. It's always a boogeyman. Like kids are never like, I'm just convinced there's a cuddly red panda under my bed. Like, you know, in nighttime, in the dark, no kid is ever like, I think there's a cuddly red panda under the bed and calling the parents to come back again and turn the light on because there's a cuddly red panda under it. It's always, it's an unknown thing. It's in the dark. So you, the imagination is like a kid's imagination is there's, there's a boogeyman or there's a monster or there's a something in the wardrobe or under the bed or in the darkness. Uh, if you were, you can, you can test yourself on it at night time. You can go two o'clock in the morning. You can go out into the lounge and you can just open the lounge door and put your hand in there, kind of thing, like, but not go in there and just kind of reach around in the darkness at two o'clock in the morning. You, you don't imagine good things. Like, you don't, you don't, the mind doesn't wander to like, they're going to get candy floss. It wanders to like, there could be somebody in there. Let's go. Then you switch on the lights. Like, that's just my normal lounge. But you extrapolate that out to a wild world that we Oceans and the sea, and things. Well, they become the monsters, these sea monsters. They're, they're personified in Leviathan, uh, in sea monsters. Uh, Leviathan's this, you know, um, no, it's legend of this multi headed sea monster kind of thing. Uh, mostly, many people, mostly when I grew up here, pastors talk about the Leviathan, they're trying to work out where it was the saltwater crocodile that's left over. That's really not the point of the story. It's the, the sea monster that somehow God has crushed the head of the sea monster. Uh, serves, as, uh, serves, the, serves the monster up as food for the desert, open streams in the desert. There's this idea of somehow taming that chaos and then over here in the barren wilderness, feeding that barren wilderness and bringing life to that somehow. Uh, dries up ever-flowing uh, rivers, perennial waters that cover the earth. This is this ancient idea of water covered everything, but then God speaks and orders and kills the sea monster and then feeds that to the desert, which dries up the perennial waters and separates the sea from the land and then 
causes actual streams of living water and healthy water to come up. That can, you know, so it's this idea of separating waters and land and, and bringing sustenance and order and out of chaos and darkness. Um, this is the division of water and land. The day is yours. Uh, the day is yours. Well, of course, the day, the day is the good time. It's the day is the known reality of life. With the sun. The day is yours. With the sun. It's like, yeah, we like that bit. But the night is yours also. Well, that's the unknown with the small light. That the, the, the night's the place of the unknown. Uh, you've set the boundaries of the earth, summer and winter, order and design that's all kind of life-giving. So this, this Psalm 74, this creation portion of the psalm, is really just another creation account. Talking of the wonder of God who brings order in the midst of chaos. Uh, we jump over to Genesis 1. Uh, I think we've got Genesis 1 there. Yeah. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without a form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. It's pictured as this place of chaos and disorder. It's, it's the habitat of sea monsters and leviathans. Um, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And yet, despite that, the Spirit, the life, the possibility of God hovers over all. God said, let there be light. There was light. And the, you know, the word of God comes forth. The logos of God that's embodied in Christ speaks order into chaos. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and morning and the first day. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse the heavens. And there was evening and there was morning the second. That's all we'll do with Genesis. But you can see, ah, we've got the same thing happening in Genesis 1 and Psalm 74, that God's bringing order into chaos is the, is the account. So if we were doing that series, what we talk about when we talk about God, one of the things we'd be talking about when we talk about God, but not all of what makes God God, but one of the things we'd be talking about when we talk about God, is that God is love, and God is life, and God is light, and God is the ground of our being, and God is the source of all life that exists. God's the foundation of the universe. That's not all of what God is, but that's one of these, when we talk about God, we're talking about God that is the ground of our being, the, the very source of all that is, the source coming out of this loving dynamic between Father, Spirit, Son, that causes life to burst forth in the universe. God's the source of all life. Not an object within the universe. See, that's a... We won't unpack that, but that's a really helpful thing to remember. God's not an object within the universe. Now, that may, for some of you, like, hang on, hold on. God's not an object within the universe. You can't draw, like, the stars and the moon and the land and then draw God, because that's God and that's where God, you know... Jesus is God in the flesh, Emmanuel in body. You could talk the Spirit is here, there, and everywhere and beyond all things. God's not. The universe is an object that exists within the heartbeat of God. Uh, yeah. But we're not going to talk about it before we are God, so we'll just leave it at that for now. But you know, that's, that's, those are good, healthy things to, to, to remind yourself. Uh, the illustration of a, a, uh, a sunken boat contains some of the ocean, but not the ocean. It's the ocean that contains the sunken boat. And so, you know, 
universe is the same boat. It contains something of God, but ultimately it's God that contains the universe. That's for free this one. All the rest that comes with you too. Um, we're talking about the Spirit. Now we're talking about the Son, the wisdom of God, the Logos of God, the full revelation of God, the Word of God that establishes the universe. Or you could say that the Word of God, the Word of God that calms the seas. One of the, the story of Jesus uh, on the boat where he calms the storm. One of the main points of that story is to highlight that Jesus is the one that spoke the world into being, the, the Logos of God, the wisdom of God, the Word of God that spoke the world into being, and is the one that tames the ocean, brings water in the midst of chaos. And then you jump to the Sermon of the Mount, and go, that's an invitation to live an ordered life in the midst of chaos, and if we all live, ah, so, yeah, there you go. Uh, Jesus, the Word of God, the Word that brings order to chaos, defeats the darkness, tames the untamed, crushes the violent. We're talking about the Spirit, the animating breath of God, the vitality and life of God, the empowerment and comfort and presence of God. The Spirit that hovers even over the chaos and the disorder, even over the darkness that admits the unknown. The Spirit is there offering life and calling life forth. So it's something not really about a sea monster. In the sense that we need to try and work out. So is this um, an ancient one? Were people around when the dinosaurs were around? Is this a crocodile or a twitter? It's like, uh, you can have some fun with that, but not really the point. Uh, but I did look at a six meter photo of a crocodile that they caught, like alive, like a six meter plus saltwater crocodile, and that was awesome and scary. And uh, it died though, so it's taxidermied now, so it's not as scary. Wild and unknown spaces. It starts about God bringing order in the midst of chaos and the great expanse of the untamed universe. In the face of the unknown, God stands and brings order. Part of what it is to be human, part of what it is to be an image bearer, part of what it is to reflect the nature of God is our own call to face to enter in, to come face to face with and to enter into the chaos of the unknown, of darkness, of Leviathans, and to bring order in the midst of that. Um, in one sense, you could call that the courage to be. Uh, it's the faith to act, it's the willingness to engage. For the world is not simply a place of things. The world's not simply a place of things. The world's a forum for action. The world is not just a place of things, but a forum for action. We are all called to act in the world, to be in the world, to function in the world. How are we going to be and act and function in the world? Well, we, we do that in light of the Sermon on the Mount. Hopefully, that's a guiding principle for how we're going to be and act and engage in the world. But there's all sorts of other things where, again and again and again, we are called to face the chaos of the unknown, which for us has a lot less to do with world travel nowadays. Uh, it's more to do with, you know, ordinary things that we've all known about forever. Like, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and plead to his wife. Like, what is, what, to get married is to face the unknown. To go out into the darkness and the chaos and the disorder of the unknown. I mean, you have all these ideas when you get married of what that looks like. It's not an unknown. I know exactly how that'll work and all pan out. And things like, oh, no, you know, we like to have kids. Having kids, that's to face disorder and chaos and to attempt to tame the untamable wild kind of thing. Uh, to leave your job, to leave the known comforts of a secure job, to step into another possibility, to follow the call of God. That's to face the Leviathan, the unknown, the disorder, 
calls for confidence. It's a lot easier just to stay in the house and live by the fire. And, uh, Lisa and I went running last night um, at 9 o'clock. We did a half marathon, so we were running quite late. Um, I tell you what, when you're running at like 10.40 at night and like you see people in houses with their lights on, you're like, that's a way more comfortable place to be. I feel like I'm out here facing the darkness and the unknown and the Leviathan that's around the corner. When you go around the mountain at that time kind of thing and you can hear the waves but not see them kind of thing. Um, you don't imagine little cuddly seals. You imagine, you know, Loch Ness Monsters coming. This is the day that the Loch Ness Monster shows up kind of thing. But when you look at the comfort of a house with a warm fire or a heater or whatever, you're like, ah, oh, that's the safe place. But life continually calls us to step out beyond that into the unknown. Now, this is one of the reasons we're so drawn to adventure stories, romance stories, uh, especially when the characters are what, what we might call kind of regular folk. Uh, you know, with the hobbits and the Lord of the Ring leaving the Shire. Like the hobbits, Tolkien, like the, the hobbits are the embodiment of everyday, ordinary, no superpowers, no super anything. They're not Marvel heroes. They're just like the most unlikely people in the world. Uh, hobbits don't leave the Shire. They live in the Shire. The Shire is the place to live. And they've got these four hobbits that journey off to Mount Doom and the unknown kind of thing. What's that going to be like for them? Well, one of the, one of the reasons we love that story is because they're, they're leaving the safety. They're going out beyond the fire. What's it going to go go for them? What's it going to go like for them when they face the unknown? Uh, in the Narnia series, you know, you've got the, the kids braving the wardrobe and entering into the unknown. It's one of the reasons that those stories are kind of timeless, because they, they tell this archetypal story of the ordinary people facing the unknown. How's that going to go for them? Because uh, we think of ourselves as the ordinary people. We all the time have to face the unknown for ourselves. What's it going to be like for these folk? They're off to tame, they don't know that, but they're off to tame the Leviathan or defeat the chaos and ultimate to be, ultimately to be transformed in that process. Uh, Alice went down the rabbit hole into a whole strange and unknown kind of world. That's the appeal. Why does Lewis Carroll's story still work? Because it's going down the rabbit hole into the strange unknown universe and how will that go for you? It's not too different to going to university when you're 18 or whatever it might be. Moving down home, how's that going Neo had to choose the red pill and embrace the unknown rather than the blue pill of blissful ignorance. It's why we like that story. Uh, I was thinking through a few movies. I don't ever seen Shooter. I'm not necessarily endorsing any of these movies. I've done that before and then, yeah, I forgot about that. Um, but, you know, in Shooter, Mark Wahlberg's Shooter, there's the FBI agent of Memphis, if you know that story. Uh, and Memphis has kind of been set up as well as. Mark Wahlberg's character being set up, kind of, but Memphis starts to be suspicious that there's that there's more going on, kind of thing. Um, and you, he's this character that you're like, come on, embrace the unknown, embrace the unknown. Come on, Memphis, you've got to look between the lines. There's more going on here, and we're cheering on Memphis as he begins to question everything and look kind of beneath the surface. Uh, it's that classic situation in those kinds of movies. Um, Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones and the Fugitive. They're standing at the dam kind of thing. And this happens in Shooter, and it happens in pretty much all of these kind of action movies. The police always say, well, look, 
come on down to the station and we'll sort it all out down at the station kind of thing. And every single time, like, don't go to the station. Don't go down to the station where they'll sort it all out because you know that the characters of the police, they're not willing to face the unknown territory, to explore the darkness, to look beyond the obvious. All of those movies are set up where jump off the dam, Harrison Ford. Even though it's freezing water and it's 700 metres, you'll be fine. You know, it's still awake because you've got to, you've got to face the unknown for yourself. You never cheer for the police to take them down to the station and you never trust it. They'll have a reasonable conversation and they'll work out that, that he wasn't the shooter. It's like, no, you can't do that because they're, they're set up as those that are willing to face the unknown and be transformed and those that are not willing to face the unknown and you know that it'll just be the status quo for them and nothing will change. So jump off the dam. So my message is you find yourself on a dam that's, no, no, that's not a decision at all. As the viewer, you, uh, you know, you don't want them to do that. In romance movies, romance stories, they're not my favourite, but that's alright. It's the unknown person. The reason that you're drawn into that is that it's somebody facing the unknown. And the unknown in that situation is this person. This, this person that's unknown. How they well, two people. How's it going to be as, they, as these two people that you know? Because they set the movie up so you know ABC about this person and one, two, three about that person, but they don't know that about each other. Like, oh, how's this all going to come and work out? Lisa always wants them to get married and have babies by the end. That's her great point. But you know, how's that going to work out? Uh, and, always, and often enough, they set them as different kinds of people. Uh, as well, there's always some other divide. So Jack, you know, Jack in Titanic is you know, the, the lower class, like 10 decks below kind of thing. Whereas Rose is high class, wealthy, and engaged. So there's all sorts of complexity going on there. Kind of like, ah! You know, Romeo and Juliet are the wrong families that shouldn't be hanging out, and shouldn't be meeting with each other, and shouldn't shouldn't be talking to each other. And that, you know, that that's all added into the story. And like you get sucked into that. But it tells us something about the normal experiences of our lives. Engaging with other people, talking with other people, meeting new people, stepping out into the chaos of a new opportunity or a new job or a new something. We love the adventure and the romance. Because uh, it's a, always a journey of transformation and growth. Uh, even when the characters die. Um, you know, Rose seems nice, but then she pushes Jack off the life raft. God, I can see that twist coming. She's an anti-hero. That's not true. It's always a journey of transformation and growth. That's the other part of the story. It's that we, we want to watch as the characters develop. Because they've got ABC and 1, 2, 3, but if they can just fall in love and forget the families, they'll be able to sort out those biases and those wrong thoughts, and they'll actually transform and grow in love. And it's just telling the story of our lives. The unknown is this thing to be tamed, but actually it's this thing that transforms us and enlarges us. Jesus calls 12 disciples to leave the known behind and journey into the unknown. It's one of the reasons why you're like... The, the problem with the Bible is mostly we know the back end from the front end. And it makes it really hard with the story. My cousin grew up in an unchurched kind of context. And he came to live with us when we were 15, 16. So I was maybe 17 and he's 15. And uh, he's reading the Bible for the first time. Like, never. He doesn't know what happens next in the story. And there's a part of me that's like, oh, man, I wish that I could not know what happens next in the story. So he's like, he's like, this guy worked for this other guy for seven years to marry this, this girl. I would never work for seven years. And I was like, just keep reading. <laughs> so he 
the story of the disciples. If we didn't know, if we didn't know the life of Jesus kind of thing, if we didn't know there was a cross and death and all of the disciples are going to end up martyred as well. You'd be, you'd, the very first time you're engaging in the story, like, they're going to leave everything they know. They're, they're leaving the Shire to follow this Christ guy. How's that going to go for them? And then by the end you're like, man, it transformed, it transformed their life. It doesn't look like it went down very well for them, but man, it transformed. It'd be fascinating to go to read that for the first time. God calls Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 1, to whom, to whom I send you, you'll go. And whatever I command you to speak, you'll speak. And it's this journey into the unknown. Jonah got called to Nineveh, but Jonah's like, I'm not having any of that. I'm going to Spain. So that was, in the end, it was this journey into the unknown. In Genesis 12, God calls Abram. Genesis 12, 1 to 4. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation, I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years when he set out from Haran. 75 years. Go to the land that I'll show you. Okay. Uh, let me just wiki that. Okay, climate, geography, population... Uh, GPI, capital income, average wage, none of that. Just go to the land that I will show you. Uh, it's this journey into the unknown. And, and, and Abraham's story is this archetypal kind of story of journeying into the unknown, following God. How's that going to go for you? Um, leaves behind all that he's ever known to enter into the chaos, the darkness, the dangers of the unknown, to face the Leviathan. No idea how it will go except Jesus, except God says to them, I will make you. Bless you, I'll make you a great nation. Come follow me, I'll make you fishes of me. Darkness was over the face of the deep, but the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Romans 12, verse 2, do not conform to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 2 Corinthians 3, after, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image. As Christ followers, we're called to be on this journey, this adventure of transformation. To become the people that God's called us to be. Inevitably, that means, or ends up meaning, that there are moments and seasons and situations in our lives where we are to embrace the unknown. To face the darkness, to confront the sea monster and the Leviathan, and to step into this unknown space. Because it's the unknown that's actually the context for transformation. I think I wrote a little bit on the next one. I kind of tried to sum it up. Oh, wrong way. Yep. There's the hobbits that got home now having a beer. And a bit of you familiar with the movie, they just sit in there quietly, everyone else is chattering, look at each other, and they're like, because they're not the same hobbits that had left three movies earlier. So in the exploration of the unknown, that new knowledge and wisdom is generated. Foreign territories explored, mapped and mastered. New skills are developed. Strength, character and commitment is tested and enlarged. New insight, fresh perspectives, a deeper sense of conviction, a new appreciation of the tried and true as well as, a new, as of the new and novel comes alive. Faith, hope and love develops. We grow in Christ. Come to conclude that I 
almost think the only place that transformation ever takes place is in the unknown. I think that's the catalyst for growth in life. If I was to break my life down into some little windows, I'd say by the time I got to a certain age, you know, when you're young, everything's unknown, but you've grown up in the church and grown up in Christian ministry and things like that. Probably by the time I got to age 24 or 25, I would think that I knew everything I was going to learn in that in a particular kind of context and environment. And well, I think I've probably come to a place where I would, who I had become would likely who I would be for the next 20 years. Uh, but then I signed up for a master's degree. And, uh, and a master's degree was this invitation into the unknown where I began to learn all this stuff. It wasn't that when I did my doctorate, that was different. That I, it was the master's degree that was this place of transformation. The doctor just carried on the work of the master's degree. But the master's degree was this whole new world of, of things that I've never kind of encountered or seen or understood before. Um, and it was fascinating. It was this season of transformation and, and growth and, and, and kind of wild and exciting all at the same time. But I don't think about and that actually started I just started reading a few different books. I uh, read a few different books that then led me to do some study kind of thing. But I, I changed the type of authors that I was reading. Instead of reading those kinds of books, I started reading these kinds of books. And that took me down a rabbit hole. That's where you get that saying from Alice in Wonderland. It took me down a rabbit hole that led to a master's degree that opened up a whole new uh, I'd say that that master's degree, though, would have, after I did the master's degree, then I had another four or five master's papers on top of that. That whole kind of period of, le- of um, learning, well, could have, that could have been a place where you parked for, the, oh, that could have been me for the next 10 or 20 years. It's like, hey, that was a great moment of transformation. But then, you know, seven years later or whatever it was, we planted the church and stepping out of a secure job to an unknown job, and there's 18 of us. And, who knows if anyone will even come to church? Well, that, that was its own journey of transformation. Uh, and who knows what would be the things that bring transformation in the future? It's not always moving location, it's just these, these different kinds of things. Studying and learning. Uh, Lisa won't mind me saying, but Lisa, Lisa got running seven years ago, I think. Having never run. Like she was not a runner, she was a non runner, or an anti runner. And then she started doing some running and she kind of enjoyed it. What it was was we had, she had a, she's got an intense job at the hospital and then we passed through church and then we had little kids. It's like, where can I go for me? I'm going to run. And then I think after like doing that for 20 minutes, it was like, I think I'm going to do five hour runs because it's more time for me. Uh, but then you know, that was this, but that became the unknown of, but now she owns, I've said you this before, now she owns running gear. And water bottles and things, and has running shoes and cross training shoes for when you run in the forest, and you know, all sorts of things. Look, you know, looks at you night, you know, looks at me last night, smiles and winks, uh, you know, that look, and says, Let's go for a half marathon run. It's like, Okay, that wasn't what I was expecting. And off we go to run for it. It's this transformation. What is that? It's a new hobby, it's a new interest, it's a new thing. Like, well, you meet new people, you engage, it becomes this thing of transformation. Professional supervisor, I got a professional supervisor, that's a, um, that's a place of transformation because they invite you into the unknown. They suggest some things that you hadn't seen for yourself. They point out some stuff that you hadn't kind of noticed and look at it from an angle you'd never consider. Well, that becomes this process of being having to kind of face the unknown and, and, and navigate that. Moving out of home, of course. Physically moving out of home. That's a place of transformation. Mentally moving out of home, that's a good one too, because some couples get married and move out of home, but one of the couples still kind of lives at home. Well, you've got to actually sever that in a healthy kind of way. 
into marriages that gets complicated. It's like, you don't live at home, but you kind of still live at home. You, that's to face the unknown. Having kids is facing the unknown. Leaving a known job or a secure job for unknown possibilities. Different ones will have, a change of career. These are things that different ones will have done at different times. Getting counseling or seeing a psychologist, facing your demons, so to speak confronting the sea monsters that you'd rather just kind of bury down and let it be just like it is for as long as it can be. Well, that's fine. You'll just you'll stay like you are for as long as you can stay. But if you can confront the unconfrontable, it's an invitation to transformation. Uh, it can be little things. And, and you have it, a spiritual discipline. Um, giving, becoming a giver. I mean, this is for me years ago. So I'm not really going to start giving. Start giving. It's like, well, that actually ends up transforming your life. So different spiritual insights, um, uh, different spiritual disciplines. You know, lifting your hands in worship can be, that's it, I'm entering into the darkness, the chaos, I'm facing the Leviathan, depending on, you know, what genre of church you grew up, kind of thing. But what you just go, it's like, oh, that's a, there's a, oh, this is really engaging and life-giving. It's this, there's, there's little things, there's big things, there's normal things, there's crazy things, but you face the unknown, it's always an invitation to transformation. I don't know how much translation is to be found in the stuff that you know. People give me, you should read this book. He talks about all the stuff you always talk about. It's like, um, probably, I don't really need to read the book then. It's probably just going to be a book and I'll get to the end of it and go, yeah, that's a good book. I, I agree with everything. It's like, I need to read books that kind of, there's enough overlap that I'm like comfortable that, okay, these, we're in the same world here, but then there's enough non-overlap that I'm being invited to wrestle with different ideas and look at things from different angles kind of things. Well, that becomes transformative. Those, of course, are the adventures that we sign up for. We enter the unknown whenever we face a crisis as well. We face a crisis, loss of a loved one. You know, it's one thing to leave your job for an unknown. It's another thing to lose your job because God made you done. But we enter into the unknown when we choose to go on the adventure. We enter into the unknown where life and the circumstances of life throw us into the chaos of the unknown as well. Mostly we will face those kinds of things as well. I'll face some things in my life. You know what? I wouldn't sign up for that. And then the next question is like, well, do, you, do you wish that never happened? And it's like, oh, that's a really tricky question. Like, yeah, of course I wish that never happened. But then at the same time, that whole situation was transformative and life-giving and I grew through that and I, oh, would you recommend that? I wouldn't recommend that for everyone. But life's going to throw up whatever it's going to throw up for people at different times and you can't escape that. So you've got, you've got to just recognize I'm in the chaos of the unknown and can I grow and be transformed through this? For even in the crisis, the Spirit of God hovers over the untamed waters. We have no sense of any need for the newness of God beyond the status quo. We grow to great lengths to avoid any kind of encounter with the unknown. I've just got my life just how I like it. Oh, you should read this book. Man, it challenged me. There's so many things in there I've never read before. Oh, I don't really want to read a book about things I've never thought about before. I want to read a book about all the things that I like and that will just kind of reinforce where I'm at. You know, whenever we've got it just how like the last thing we want is to enter into the unknown. But life has a way of throwing us into the unknown one way or another. And I think God has a way of calling us into the unknown one way or another as well. Otherwise you end up spoiled. You end up parked. 
I think God's wanting to always bring about continual transformation. Poor old Abram. 75 years. I want you to up and leave and go. It's like, I'm quite old. I'm 75. I don't think I want to relaunch into that. And, and really, I'm not really talking about this morning about physical locations and shifting and moving. So everyone needs to move to India. I'm not saying that or whatever it might be, because normally the unknown is going to be in this kind of localized world. But God calls Abram into this journey into the unknown. And then Hebrews 11, I won't read it all, but oh, by faith Abraham went called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going to go. By faith he made it his home and his promised land like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob were heirs with them of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, as a and he, as good as dead, uh, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, as countless as the sand on the seashore. He ends up in the Hebrews 11, the chapter of the, all the heroes of the faith. He stepped out and he left. It didn't go well for him at first, though. We know, again, this is one of these stories we know backwards from oh, Abraham. Well, he's the founder of the nations and he's blessed and he has heaps of goats. Because um, that's the dream, man. Eh? Heaps of goats. Got heaps of goats and some camels. And uh, it all went well for me. Read about it in Hebrews 11. Well, five verses after being called to go, there's a famine in the land, and he has to hightail it down to Egypt. Like, there's a famine where they become refugees having to go to Egypt. Like, I don't know if I want to step out of faith and five verses later, it's a famine and we're refugees. Like, that doesn't feel super exciting. And then he's 75, and his wife, I guess, is 74. But she's super hot, apparently, uh, because um, he lies to Pharaoh that God's um, not, because he was scared that they're going to, Pharaoh or somebody in Egypt would murder him to steal his wife because it's the old days. And so he lies and says, Sarah's just my sister. So then Pharaoh nabs his wife, but then word comes to Pharaoh, so actually, that's not Abraham's sister, it's his wife. And then he gets arrested and gets in trouble for Pharaoh. It's not like this journey into the unknown is like amazing and everything went well from day number one. And yet, there's this faith and this trust and there's this looking to God and over time, there's this transformation that takes place. So it's hard to know when you step into the unknown whether it's foolishness or faith. That's a real tricky one. Uh, I, like to say, I stepped out of faith at Planet St. Luke's. Maybe we did. Maybe we just stepped out of foolishness. It's really hard to know. Hindsight doesn't necessarily answer that question one way or another because it could have been the right thing to do if there was still only 18 of us that were shrunk down to 10. I don't know. How do you really measure that? Faith and foolishness feel very similar in the moment. Started reading different books, took me down a path to a master's degree and a doctor and I think some path of transformation. What if I chose the wrong books though and ended up hopeless, nihilist, confused by the ambiguity of life? Some books can take you down that path and then in hindsight you are always foolish to we don't know. The unknown is this, where will it take us? It's a bit. In your community, you need to trust God and listen to the voice of God. Jesus is the logos of God, the wisdom of God that brings order out of okay. Alright, let's stand together. We are finished with communion this morning. Metaphorically, maybe you haven't left the Shire in years, and maybe God's calling you afresh this morning. Come follow me. Maybe you feel like God's been knocking on your heart into some 
in regard to some situation or circumstance or scenario or job thing or relational thing or business, I don't know, it could be anything. You just feel like God's knocking on your heart and leading, but it feels like leaving the Shire. And maybe it feels like leaving the Shire wasn't a big deal when you were 26, but now that you're a bit older, a bit wiser, maybe you wanted to leave the Shire. And I don't mean that you have to shift a matter matter or leave matter matter, I just mean stepping out in faith in one direction or another. Or maybe it's that moment to recognize that the Spirit of God hovers over the waters of the deep. The very nature of God is to bring water out of chaos, to bring transformation in the midst of the unknown. Maybe you're in the midst of chaos and confusion that was not your own doing. You've landed in the midst of chaos and confusion. Well, the Spirit hovers over the waters of the deep in that situation as well in desires to come alongside and to lead and to bring transformation, to bring faith and hope and love and comfort. Maybe you're in the midst of chaos and confusion and it was your own doing. There was a few things along the way that you look and you go, that was a dumb thing. I knew that was a dumb thing at the time. It's landed you in a place of chaos and confusion. Well, God's not absent to you in that place. He comes alongside. The Leviathan, the sea monster, the unknown can be tamed. Transformation is possible. It can be scary, but faith, hope, and love prevails. So as we gather at the table this morning, my encouragement is to sit, to be still, with bread and wine, to remember the one who is the Word of God, who in the cross tamed death, Tamed death and the cross faced sin and death and tamed the ultimate chaos, the ultimate destruction. Tamed death rose from the dead, conquered sin and death. Sit with the one who is wisdom, desires to lead us in all. So table of the Lord's being prepared this morning, not that of the church, but that of our Lord Jesus Christ. May for those that love the Lord a little, those that would like to love him more, may for those that have followed faithfully. And for those that have tried and failed, there's space for all at the table. Certain, the uncertain, the faith-filled, and the doubters have come, not because of your own goodness, but come because of the goodness of God. Come to the tree of life, rediscover, turn your hearts towards Jesus, and receive the salvation of God. He is the bread of life, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin. Come to where heaven and earth overlap, receive love and grace and mercy this morning. Jesus.